begin. Welcome back to Mass Ave. We have Jarrett Stepman back with us, uh, and he is the news editor at the Daily Signal, I believe, also self-proclaimed Jackson enthusiast. That's right. Uh, and recently, Jarrett, you published a piece in the National Interest titled, The Republican Should Be the Party of Lincoln and Jackson. Uh, and I've always kind of said around here that there are two people in Washington that care the most about Andrew Jackson, and that is President Trump and Jarrett Stepman. Jarrett, could you elaborate a little bit on your article? Absolutely. So my article was essentially a response to Rich Lowry, who is a the editor of National Review. And he wrote this piece uh, that was spread around. It was the first in Politico about how the Republican Party should be very wary about embracing Andrew Jackson, who is, of course, the first Democrat president, uh, and should really hold firm to Abraham Lincoln, the man who's attributed to the foundation of the party and somebody who's always been recognized as, of course, the first, the greatest Republican um, that was his argument, essentially, that we should hold tight to Abraham Lincoln. Liberals are trying to take him from us, and we shouldn't let that happen. My argument is actually that we should include Andrew Jackson and Lincoln in kind of the Republican or conservative pantheon of leaders um, is not somebody who we want to throw under the bus. And so what is it that you think we we most misunderstand about Andrew Jackson? Yeah, I mean, I think Andrew Jackson is a figure that really hasn't been – study too much on the right. And I think, unfortunately, I think a lot of his ideas and principles are something that are very much in line with modern conservatives. Uh, he was very much a limited government guy, believed strongly in federalism. He believed that most power should be delegated back to the states, while at the same time also being a unionist. I mean, he staved off, which was essentially a secession movement in his own time, because he believed one, that most policies should be set by the states, but that if the states broke off from the union, that it would destroy the country. And so a lot of his arguments about the union and you know its indivisibleness uh, also impacted Lincoln and helped bring arguments for Lincoln to save the union during the Civil War. So I, I think a lot of the ideas of Jackson, unfortunately, have been neglected by the right, and I think partially because he's seen as this Democrat here. Of course, in his time, there were no Republicans. Um, I think he's just been ignored and been too overlooked. And I think it's great that President Donald Trump has brought him back as a figure that maybe we should be looking at more, maybe we should be studying and not just throwing into the dustbin of history. It's pretty well known that Donald Trump is is also an admirer of Andrew Jackson's. He's got a painting of him in the Oval Office, I believe, as well as a statue. He's got a little bust there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how do you see that President Trump could kind of incorporate Jacksonian ideals, ideas, or, or uh, policy into today's current uh, political climate? Absolutely. You know, I think he's done so in some of his speeches. I think some of his talks on especially uh, radical Islamists. I mean, one of his big speeches that he delivered to a joint session of Congress you know, he said these people are, you know, savages, they're they're attacking us. And he used very harsh rhetoric that was very much appealed to, I would say, Jacksonian type voters. You know, he was un unafraid to say what everybody knew about these groups that are attacking the United States. I think that is a very Jacksonian principle. And I think that especially in the realm of foreign policy, that America will make no apologies for, for what it is that won't back down to foreign aggression, that will protect its interests uh, abroad. This is a very Jacksonian message, something that old Hickory, as Andrew Jackson used to be called, uh, would have appreciated, would have admired. I mean, that's what he was about. He was about protecting the interests of the United States. He was a dangerous man not to be trifled with. And foreign countries saw that, and, and it brought more respect and more strength to the United States. 
And so, as you said earlier, one of your biggest points of your article is that Jackson and Lincoln are better together, um, saying it's clear that Republicans are at their strongest when they combine both elements. Um, are there examples of times when Republicans have done this? Absolutely. I mean, the original the original Republican Party was a combination of old Jacksonian supporters and old Whigs. It combined many of the men who formed the original Democrat Party, men like Francis Preston Blair, who was a chief lieutenant of Jackson, helped form the Republican Party because they stood for union. They stood against the expansion of slavery, which they thought was tarnishing their own party. And so this merging of these elements, the unionist Jacksonians and Lincoln's elements, which, you know, more articulately defended the ideas of, you know, individual rights and, and being against slavery. It was it really this was the creation of the Republican Party started as a union between Jacksonians and old Whigs, old Lincoln Whigs, who formed this this what we call the grand old party today. And I think that's a very long tradition in this country. And I think that's when it's at its best. It's pretty well known that uh, Andrew Jackson was a pretty big uh, anti-crony capitalist. Uh, it seems to be something that's re-emerging as well today during the Trump administration, something he ran on last year in 2016 and is looking to incorporate in his platform as president. Um, do you see him taking some of those anti-crony capitalist ideas and implementing them today? Yeah, I mean, that was that was a big part of, I think, what you'd see as the, the Tea Party message. I mean, I mean, a lot of what created the Tea Party movement was anger at you know, not only, I mean, you're paying for your neighbor's house, you're paying to bail out the banks, and the forgotten man is the average humble taxpayer who you know, pays his bills and does things right and gets punished. And that the you know small elements of society, the regular guy who doesn't have influence in halls of power, he gets cut out because of the, the real influencers in D.C. can always find ways to make carve-outs themselves. This was very, this is very in line with how Jackson thought. And his whole bank war against the second bank of the United States, which was kind of a quasi-public-private institution, Jackson, in the end, found it to be a bad institution because it was essentially um, – it was it was kind of like the modern day or excuse me the latter day uh, you know Freddie Mac or, or Fannie Mae it was it was basically this institution that was getting public money that had enormous amount of power over the everyday lives of Americans and Jackson wanted to break that he wanted to sever the connection between the banks and and the state and he thought that th this was right for Americans this would bring essentially laissez-faire capitalism i mean free markets i mean that's what jacks was more about now he didn't use that that language but that's what he believed in which why he he made such a courageous stand when he vetoed the charter of the national bank and decided to say hey these banks should be decentralized they should be on the state level they should be essentially using private capital they shouldn't have crony connections in dc being the main reason why you can get a loan there are many members of congress who are literally on the payroll of the bank at the time. Um, so Jackson very much waged war against that. And I think that's a very important message, especially when we have issues like, you know, one big one is the XM Bank today. I mean, it's, you know, it's it's really this engine of cronyism that I think a lot of Americans are uncomfortable for. I mean, why should these big businesses be getting these, these giant loans just because they have connections in Congress when the average business owner, he's got to get ahead on his own? So I think this is a this is a big message that you know hopefully Trump can can embrace and I and I hope that Trump not just celebrates Jackson but really grabs a hold of his deepest principles which of course is the most important thing. I mean we we can talk about how great Jackson was and how tough he is and how great but what really made him great as a president and a successful leader is he had strongly held convictions and principles and he stuck to them through thick and thin when you know 
forces were aligned against him, when the interests of the bank were trying to stop him, Jackson was forceful about his ideas and didn't let go and stood for the American people. And I think that's something that, you know, Trump during his presidency is definitely going to have to look to. I mean, there are times where he's going to be unpopular. There's times where he is going to be on the wrong side of things. Is he going to stay? Is he going to hold the line the way that Andrew Jackson did? Or is he going to switch positions because, well, this has gotten unpopular. This has gotten tough. And so I can say that if Trump really does think Jackson is this great model and great leader, he really needs to pay attention on this one thing. Jackson was a man of character and strength, and that's what the American people loved. And if if Trump doesn't do that, he won't succeed. If he does, I believe he will. So I think that, you know, it is very important for Americans and and the president to look to these leaders of the past, like Jackson, like Lincoln, uh, you know, for help in what we do today in our modern politics. I think it is very important. Fascinating perspective from Jarrett Stepman, our Daily Signal's resident historian. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. And we'll be right back with Mass Ave. Did you know you can now listen to all of our events through SoundCloud or just by visiting our events page on heritage.org? You now have access to hundreds of events and compelling discussions on policy issues from your car, on the train, or the comfort of your own home. Visit heritage.org events for more information or search for the Heritage Foundation on SoundCloud. Hi, this is Rob Bluey, Vice President of Publishing and Editor-in-Chief of The Daily Signal. Check out Blueprint for Balance, a federal budget. This Heritage Foundation budget plan balances the budget within seven years and cuts spending by more than $10 trillion. To find it, go to Heritage.org and search for budget or spending. Welcome back. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Tiffany. And this is Behind the Bench, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're going to talk about the latest rumors of a Supreme Court retirement, recent judicial nominations, which is my favorite thing, um, and we're going to interview one of our colleagues who is a voting law expert. So kicking things off, we're going to talk about the latest retirement rumors. Uh, we'll go from the silliest to the most serious. So first up is a suggestion that Ruth Bader Ginsburg should uh, strike a deal with, with Donald Trump. So this comes from Newsmax CEO Chris Ruddy, who's apparently a confidant of uh, President Trump. And he suggested that in exchange for replacing Judge Merrick Garland, who, of course, was President Obama's failed choice for a Scalia seat on the court, that uh, Ginsburg should, should agree to step down in exchange for Merrick Garland being put in her place. Now, first of all, she's 84, but she is not interested in going anywhere. She's made it very clear that she loves being a Supreme Court justice and she's going to do it uh, as long as she can do the job full steam. And also, this would be a pretty bad deal for President Trump. He should uh, be able to select the type of nominees that he wants to place on the court, nominees along the lines of Neil Gorsuch, who are conservatives, who are originalists, and and will be faithful to the Constitution. Or any other judge on that list of 21 that he initially put out. Yes. So I I don't think it's very likely that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is going to voluntarily step down and uh, President Trump shouldn't uh, entertain any deals with her in any event. Next up, uh, Clarence Thomas. There are suggestions, or at least one suggestion, that he should consider stepping down. This comes from a a liberal election law expert, uh, Rick Hassan, who is saying that, you know, President Trump may not have a second term and it could be a while before there's another Republican administration. So in that case, Clarence Thomas may want to think about his legacy. He may want to step down now, even though he's only going to be 69 this summer. So that's pretty uh, pretty young in terms of Supreme Court justices. Uh, but if he's thinking about his legacy, he, he may want to uh, have uh, have a hand in uh, being ensured that, that a good uh, replacement will, will come on after him. 
I personally think that Clarence Thomas is a national treasure. I don't want him to go anywhere, and I don't think it's very likely that he is going to step down uh, in the next couple years. He has to stay forever. He is clearly the best justice. <laughs> he, he does. Uh, and then finally, the most, uh, the most serious of the, of the rumors is that Justice Anthony Kennedy, the perennial swing vote, might be thinking about retiring. And Tiffany is a round of applause for, for <laughs> yes, Justice Kennedy. Yes, let's hope so. <laughs> so he's, of course, the, the last of Ronald Reagan's appointees to the court, but he uh, often sides with the liberals in, in a number of cases, although he is, uh, I think as some people have called him, a part-time conservative, uh, but we want a full-time conservative. Yes. So uh, at the time, right after the election, uh, he it came to people's attention that he had not hired all of his law clerks for the next term, which is pretty unusual. The justices typically hire about a year out, and he only hired one. So this was leading people to speculate that he was kind of waiting to see what the outcome of the election was going to be, and maybe he would be ready to uh, to retire. Um, also, but since then, he, he is hired up, so he has all four clerks set up uh, for the next term that, that will start in, in October. Uh, another, another thing that lends credence to the rumor is the fact that he typically has a reunion for all of his former law clerks every five years, but he's moved it up a year, so it's going to be this summer, and it's only been four years since the last one. Now, David Latt from Above the Law reports that, you know, this could be a coincidence. Kennedy turned 80 uh, this past year, and so uh, some people are suggesting that the clerks want encouraged Kennedy to move it up so that they could celebrate his 80th birthday, but uh, his birthday was a while ago, and uh, I guess they're still celebrating, but uh, I guess we'll we'll see soon enough if he is serious about stepping down. And hopefully he is. Um, but that brings us to um, talking about other judicial nominations. So um, a couple weeks ago, Trump rolled out a list of 10 nominees to the lower federal courts, and there are many more to come. And it's a terrific list as far as we can tell. And two of those um, on the list were formerly on Trump's SCOTUS list. Um, those are Joan Larson and David Strauss. They're two law professors turned state Supreme Court justices. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about them. Uh, so Joan Larson has only been on the Michigan Supreme Court um, very for a very brief stint. She was formerly a professor at the University of Michigan Law School, and she clerked for Justice Scalia. So um, one of my favorite uh, anecdotes about her is um, people always ask her, what, you know, what's it like to be a woman clerking for Justice Scalia? And she always quips back, uh, much like being a man clerking for Justice Scalia. <laughs> um, but, you know, she's written a lot about uh, she's written about criticizing. Um, she's criticized the use of foreign and international law and in interpreting our Constitution, um, although she's only written a few opinions on the Michigan Supreme Court. Um, she seems very solid in her thinking about uh, how to interpret statutes and how to interpret the Constitution and that she's going to, um, you know, interpret them as written. And another thing to point out is that uh, all of her former colleagues at the University of Michigan Law School uh, wrote a letter, uh, signed on to a letter uh, in support of her nomination. And these are not a bunch of conservatives. These are uh, pretty liberal individuals, most of them. And, you know, they said in the letter that they may not agree with her, with the outcome of how she would arrive at cases, uh, but they think that she will be a good judge. They would, might not have picked her if they, you know, if they were Donald Trump, but uh, they, they respect that she will be uh, an excellent uh, federal appeals court judge. Yeah, and we think she's going to make a great addition to the Sixth Circuit. Um, David Strauss is up next. Next, he has been a justice on the Minnesota Supreme Court since 2010. And before that, he was a law professor at the University of Minnesota. Um, and he is a former Clarence Thomas clerk. 
Um, and, you know, I was reading some of, through some of his opinions, and one dissent really stuck out to me. Um, so uh, Minnesota had this law that said uh, the court shall sentence a person to life imprisonment without possibility of release for a conviction of first-degree pre- premeditated murder. And um, the whole Minnesota Supreme Court agreed that this was unconstitutional. Um, but the majority, instead of just striking the law down, changed the statute from uh, reading shall to may. Um, so while uh, and ju- uh, Justice Strauss um, dissented from this part, while he agreed with the majority that it was unconstitutional, he said, whoa, 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 the court can't, can only strike down a statute. It can't amend it. Um, and so I think that's a really good sign of what is to come um, from him being on the Eighth Circuit. And another thing to point out about the list generally is that President Trump is prioritizing finding uh, young individuals to put on the federal bench. This was something that Ronald Reagan did. So there are many Reagan judges who are still uh, still on the bench, you know, 30 plus years later. And so I think this is a positive development. Trump is thinking about the long game here and sort of building up the farm team for future Supreme Court vacancies. So with that, that brings us to our SCOTUS term of the week. This week's term is relist. So the Supreme Court meets uh, during when, the, when they're in, uh, in session during the year from October until uh, June. They typically meet once a week where they get together and they talk about new petitions that have been filed before them, uh, new cases that they might be taking. So the term of the week is relist, and this is where the justices will consider a case and then they'll decide they're not ready to make a decision. Uh, so they're going to relist it and set it for reconsideration at the next conference. So this is an important term uh, term right now because there are a couple of cases that we've talked about before that have been relisted multiple times. One of them is the Masterpiece Cake uh, case. This this involved a uh, a, a baker who would not uh, make wedding cakes for same sex uh, weddings and uh, was ultimately uh, lost uh, lost their case before I think the Colorado Human Rights Commission or something yeah, like that. That's right. And so they filed their cert petition uh, when they lost uh, last August, and their case has been relisted or rescheduled for consideration 14 times, which is a lot. I mean, typically the justices might re- relist something one or two times uh, because they, you know, they just want to take a closer look at, at the record in a case. But this one has been relisted multiple times. I suspect that they, they the justices might have been waiting for their ninth justice to be confirmed before they made a decision because they weren't, you know, sure uh, what the court was going to look like and whether they would have enough um, votes to take the case one way or the other. But Justice Gorsuch has um, participated in a couple conferences since then, so it's interesting that they're still putting it off. You'd think um, that he would be up to speed on on that case by this point. So who knows what's going on with it? Yeah, that's true. And another one is the Peruta case, and this involves uh, the ability to carry a concealed firearm arm, and that's been relisted seven times. So we're not really sure what's going on with these two cases. Uh, you know, they, they seem like issues that are ripe for Supreme Court review. Um, so, you know, we're going to keep watching and we'll let you know what happens with them. Um, but one other possibility is that, um, that, well, they're trying to get, you know, a fourth vote to grant cert or that someone could be writing um, a dissent from denial, um, which takes some time to write usually. So they could that could be a sign that um, at least one of these cases could be denied and maybe someone's writing their um, vigorous dissent. <laughs> yes. Uh, and so uh, another thing, you can check out John Elwood at SCOTUS blog. He routinely does a relist watch where he highlights the cases that have been relisted and he writes about them in a, uh, about as humorous a way as you can. 
We are very happy to have with us one of our colleagues, Hans von Spakovsky. He's a senior legal fellow in the Mies Legal Center here at Heritage. Um, and he also uh, was a federal election commissioner. Um, and he runs our Heritage's election law initiative. Um, so before we uh, get into the substance, one quick anecdote about Hans. Um, so during the Gorsuch confirmation, you know, um, liberals were grasping at straws, trying to come up with reasons um, why Gorsuch wasn't fit for the Supreme Court. And they fell so flat that they uh, decided to use Hans as a reason. So um, uh, Neil Gorsuch once, um, when he heard that Hans was being uh, nominated to the FEC, he sent an email that said, good for Hans. And thus, the liberals thought, you know, that's a good enough reason that he should not be confirmed because um, he th thinks highly of Hans von Spakovsky. <laughs> I would also point out that uh, during the Obama administration, Hans earned the unofficial nickname of uh, the Inspector General of the Justice Department uh, because he wrote so so frequently about the deeds or rather misdeeds of the Justice Department under Eric Holder and Loretta Lynch. So we're pleased to have Hans here with us today. Um, we've previously talked about the North Carolina voter ID case, which unfortunately the Supreme Court denied cert in that case recently. And uh, we're also going to talk about uh, a, a recent decision in the North Carolina redistricting case, which was based on their 2010 census. So Hans, let's start with the, the voter ID case. Uh, can you just get us up to speed? What exactly happened there? The chief justice wrote a statement, but they didn't take the case. So just kind of give us a rundown of what happened there. Sure. Well, first, everybody ought to understand that the North Carolina voter ID law was a very reasonable, very common sense law. And the decision by a three-judge panel of the Fourth Circuit to throw it out was, was really outside of the law. Um, it's actually kind of interesting because all four of the states surrounding North Carolina, Georgia, Tennessee, Virginia, South Carolina, they all have voter ID laws, some of them much stricter, and every single one of those laws has been upheld in the courts, and yet the North Carolina law was thrown out. Um, what happened was after the Fourth Circuit panel threw out the North Carolina voter ID law, the state legislature, uh, using its own lawyer, filed a petition for cert with the U.S. Supreme Court, which, as your listeners know, is a request that the Supreme Court accept the case for review. What happened on Monday is that the Supreme Court refused to accept the case for review. And in very unusual circumstances, the uh, chief justice actually wrote a two-page explanation. And in that explanation, he wanted to make clear that the Supreme Court was not ruling on the substantive merits of the voter ID law. This was purely procedural. And the reason they didn't take the case was because of the procedural chaos in the suit. And what happened was this. Remember, it was the state legislature through their own lawyer that asked the Supreme Court to take the case for review. But last November, a new attorney general was elected uh, in North Carolina, a Democrat, former, in fact, a, a former state senator, and as soon as he was sworn in, he sent a request to the Supreme Court saying, uh, North Carolina is hereby withdrawing its petition for certiorari. The legislature uh, got angry and sent a, uh, a motion to the Supreme Court saying, wait a minute, the attorney general doesn't have the right to withdraw this petition. Uh, not only did he not consult with us, uh, as the supposed client of the attorney general, and he didn't ask our permission to do that. But moreover, he actually violated the profesh professional code of conduct that rules uh, governs lawyers and, and, and how they act in North Carolina. Why? 
Well, because a lawyer is prohibited from acting as a legal, legal representative in a case in which he's a witness. And this new attorney general had actually been a fact witness in the trial of the voter ID law. Why? Well, because he was a state senator when the law was passed and he was testifying against it. So the legislature basically said the attorney general had no right to do what he was doing. And what the chief justice said in their refusal to take the case was, look, there's this procedural confusion. We don't know who's got a right to, to be representing the state in the case. One side says they don't want to review. The other side says they do want to review. We're not going to take the case um, because of this problem in, uh, in the procedures of, of the case. So, Hans, what happens now with the law? Can the legislature go back to the drawing board? What's the next steps? Yeah, they can go back and try to amend the law. Uh, the problem they're going to have is that the other thing that happened in the last election was that the Republican governor who had signed the first law uh, was replaced by a Democratic governor. And it's highly likely that he would veto uh, whatever the legislature comes up with. So they're going to have to come up with a veto-proof uh, amendment. Of course, the other problem is I'm not sure how much more reasonable the legislature could be. And let me tell you what I mean. Um, the North Carolina law had a huge exception in it. If you don't have a photo ID, if you showed up at a polling place and were willing to sign uh, a one-page form that says, I had a reasonable impediment that kept me from getting an ID, you would still you, – you would be able to vote. And yet even with that exception – the three-judge panel said, oh, it's a discriminatory law. It can't be in place. I don't know how anybody looking at that kind of a law could possibly believe that it's actually discriminatory. So shifting gears now, let's talk about the, the North Carolina redistricting case. So these districts have been litigated for years now. Right. What is the state doing wrong that keeps getting it into trouble? Well, the problem the state has is that the this area of the law redistricting and um, the use of race and redistricting is so confused uh, and so chaotic because of the lack of firm rules uh, by the court. Let me tell you what I mean. Um, uh, not too long ago in a case called Shaw versus Reno, and again, this was a redistricting case also, also out of North Carolina, the U.S. Supreme Court said if race is the predominant factor in how you drew districts, well, that's uh, unconstitutional and you can't do that. On the other hand, um, if states don't take account of race, at least uh, in some way, they face uh, Voting Rights Act lawsuits by minorities saying, oh, you're preventing us from being able to vote. You're diluting our vote. So, so this puts in place what I call the Goldilocks principle. <laughs> and by that, I mean um, – if, if states use too much race, too much consideration of race, they're going to be considered to have violated a law. If they don't use race enough, they're going to be considered to have violated the law. They have to use just the right amount of race in their consideration of redistricting. But how much is enough? How much isn't? The rules are so vague, they don't really know. It, keep in mind, in one of these districts, the argument was over a four percentage point difference in the black voting population. In other words, they took one district, which was 48 uh, percent black, and they changed it to 52 percent black. And that was what the claim was. That was discriminatory. 
four percentage points. That is such a marginal difference. Most people uh, w would look at that and going, what in the world are you fighting about? And how can it be that a district that's 48 percent black is non-discriminatory, yet suddenly if you make the district 52 percent black, well, suddenly that's discriminatory and you violated the law. It, it just it doesn't make a lot of sense. So how do you tell exactly um, if the race is the predominant factor. seems like there's a lot of confusion. That doesn't make any sense. That, in fact, that's the real difficulty with the Voting Rights Act the, these days. And this is something that um, uh, Justice Alito pointed out in his dissent, which was joined by uh, the Chief Justice and uh, Justice Kennedy. Um, one of the other two districts, this is District 12, uh, Congressional District. By the way, District 12 uh, has been before the Supreme Court five times with lawsuits uh, arguing over whether or not it's discriminatory or not. In, in that district, the Republicans upped the black uh, voting age uh, population from about 43 percent to a little over 50 percent. Now, they said that it had nothing to do with race. It had everything to do with partisanship because uh, – and this is the problem um, – African-Americans are like a monolithic voting block for the Democratic Party. You know, upwards of 90, in some places, 95 percent of, of African-Americans vote Democratic. So if, for example, a legislature um, puts more what they consider to be Democratic voters into a district, inevitably, a lot of those voters are going to be black. So when they're, when they're trying to make a stronger Democratic district or a stronger Republican district, if they're acting from a purely partisan standpoint, how are you going to distinguish that between them acting from a racial standpoint because of the fact that so many African-Americans vote Democratic? It's really hard to tell the difference between the two. And that was evident in this case. The majority of justices thought that uh, the redrawing of District 12 was for racial reasons, whereas Justice Alito said, no, there's no evidence it was race. It was pure partisanship. And we don't know which of the two it was. It certainly seems like the legislatures are damned if you do, damned if you don't. That's exactly that's exactly right. Well, Hans, thanks uh, thanks for joining us. We're going to wrap up now with a round of Supreme Trivia Retirement Edition, uh, where I'm going to try to stump Tiffany with a few questions. Yeah, bring it on. First, when in recent history were there two vacancies on the Supreme Court, and why? Oh, this is an easy one. So uh, Roberts, uh, Justice Roberts and Justice Alito were confirmed around the same time. So those vacancies arose um, with uh, Justice Rehnquist and Justice O'Connor. And Justice Rehnquist had passed away. Um, he was Chief Justice and um, Justice O'Connor, I guess, got tired of being a Supreme Court justice. That is correct. Uh, Sandra Day O'Connor announced her intention to retire in the summer of 2005, and President Bush then nominated John Roberts to her seat. Uh, in the intervening period, uh, while the Senate Judiciary Committee was considering that nomination, Chief Justice Rehnquist, who had been battling pancreatic cancer, passed away in September. So President Bush then moved John Roberts to the Chief Justice spot, where he was very promptly confirmed so he would get on, uh, on the bench in time for the term to begin in October. And ultimately, Justice Alito was confirmed to uh, Justice O'Connor's former seat. Next question. How many retired Supreme Court justices are there currently? That one's also an easy one. All right. Um, got to step up my game. Uh, Justice O'Connor, Sandra Day O'Connor, who we just talked about. Um, John Paul Stevens, who is very, very old. Um, <laughs> and uh, David Souter. 
That is correct. So Justice O'Connor, uh, what if, if you're interested to hear what retired Supreme Court justices do, Justice O'Connor started a nonprofit organization dedicated to teaching kids about civics. And this included a video game. So she's hip with the young people. <laughs> uh, Justice Stevens, whose 97th birthday was this spring, um, he wrote a book a couple years ago proposing six amendments to the Constitution, uh, including banning capital punishment. So apparently he thinks he uh, can uh, improve improve on the Constitution in several ways. And then finally, David Souter, he occasionally sits on panels on the Fourth Circuit, uh, the sorry, the First Circuit Court of Appeals, where he was previously a judge before he became a Supreme Court justice. Yeah, he's he's the quietest of the bunch. I, I remember hearing uh, a couple months ago, I think John Paul Stevens really wanted to like throw the one of the first pitches at the World Series. Um, I don't think they let him do it, but I think he I think he went to some of the games. I think he's a really big um, Chicago Cubs fan. Maybe <laughs> I, I'm not a baseball fan, so I, I couldn't tell you. But anyway, I, I'm sure he was at the game. Uh, okay, so third and final question: What time of year have Supreme Court justices announced their retirements uh, in recent years, and why? On another one, Elizabeth. Um, they announce retirements at the very end of the Supreme Court term, um, which is usually the end of June. Uh, yes, that's correct. Well, thanks for listening to Behind the Bench. And if you like what you hear, you can subscribe to uh, to the podcast to hear more on iTunes or SoundCloud. And you can also check us out on Twitter. Um, our handles are Tiffany H. Bates and E.H. Slattery. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Rob Bluey, Vice President of Publishing and Editor-in-Chief of The Daily Signal. If you liked hearing about the issues that Washington's not discussing, check out Underreported, a brand new video series from The Daily Signal looking at other issues that the mainstream media forgot to mention. Are you looking for quick conservative policy solutions to current issues? Sign up for Heritage's weekly newsletter, The Agenda. Each Tuesday in The Agenda, you will learn what issues Heritage scholars on Capitol Hill are working on, what position conservatives are taking, and links to our in-depth research. The Agenda also provides information on important events happening here at Heritage that you can watch online, as well as media interviews from our experts. Sign up for The Agenda on Heritage.org today. All right, and welcome back to Mass Ave. You know, one of the best things about working at Heritage is the people who we work with and the broad range of experience that they bring with them over here. Um, so today we have J.V. Venable. Uh, he is a former commander of the Thunderbirds. So, uh, J.V., tell us a little bit about your experiences uh, in the Thunderbirds. Well, Emily, it started uh, when I was a little boy. Uh, the experience that I had uh, just actually realizing what I wanted to do when I grew up came from a World Book Encyclopedia. I saw the picture of the Thunderbirds in the 1969 version of the World Book Encyclopedia. And you can imagine over the course of 35 years before I entered the team how the emotional build came to me actually stepping inside the hangar. And so when I got there, uh, what I saw was uh, a team that was even stronger and, and more knotted up, more tighter than I could have ever imagined. And the level of professionalism was extraordinary. Um, from the flying aspects to the day-to-day -day life and leading and commanding an organization, I couldn't have asked for a better experience. And Emily mentioned that you were commander of the Thunderbirds. How did that process go about? How did you become commander and end up leading this this impressive? I mean, everyone knows about the Thunderbirds. It's something, as you mentioned earlier, um, I dreamed of as a kid. Every kid wants to eventually end up being a Thunderbird. Uh, how did you become the commander? 
Well, Brad, I, I would say I went through the standard career build that every fighter pilot tries to. You go through a series of steps and you try to be as good as you can possibly be from from uh, entry into flight school on into F-16 school and then at every tactical level becoming the best fighter pilot you can. You build a portfolio that allows you to submit an application and I did like everybody else did. I I, I built an application, had a bunch of letters of, uh, of recommendation in it and fortunately that got my foot in the door for the interview process. The interview process pretty extensive. Last uh, three, uh, almost three entire weekends where you go with the team for one weekend and you're basically with someone the entire time. There's formal interviews, but the most dangerous or the most bestest of those, uh, whichever way you look at it, was the informal times when you're riding in a car, when you're engaging people on the streets and you're with someone who's on the team and they get to watch and see how comfortable you are, not just with the crowd, but with yourself. Uh, and so uh, over the course of uh, three weekends, um, I, I actually uh, made it past a hurdle I didn't actually expect I would. I was diagnosed with cancer uh, three years prior to me applying for the team. And the average guy who applied and the average gal who applies now has a, a medical record that's on the order of uh, a couple of uh, uh, maybe three quarters of an inch thick. And I had two encyclopedia volumes set uh, by the time I, I applied. And for whatever reason, what, what I said, or it was the $50 check I left at, uh, let it, at the end of the, the, the application process, <laughs> they picked me. And from that point, I uh, stepped on board and went into the standard training process that every fighter pilot goes into when he's going to be a demonstration pilot there. Right. And uh, maybe kind of give us a little bit of background on the Thunderbirds. Like, what what is their function? And, and well, the average American lives in uh, in the flyover country, uh, right. in places where there are no military uh, organizations, much less uh, basing structures. That's also true in places like um, uh, parts of Washington State, Oregon, and the likes, where you have uh, thriving metropolises of of people who never get a chance to actually reach out and touch someone who's in the military. And what the jet uh, demonstration teams do is take that military out to the people where they can see the professionalism and they can see the camaraderie, the esprit de corps, and maybe get a sense of what their taxpayers are, taxpayer dollars are going for. And when we leave them with that sense of pride and, uh, and, 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 and professionalism, we, we've given them the message that we want to give them. For some of those folks, we inspire them to, to come and join our ranks. And, uh, and that's a special opportunity that we, we get to en engage with on a day-to-day -day basis uh, when you're wearing the Thunderbird uniform. It sounds like there's a lot more than what's on the outside of the Thunderbirds, just the cool tricks. It sounds like this certainly has had a profound impact on your life. How did this impact your the rest of your military experience in the Air Force? Well, it gave me um, uh, a greater foundation across a broad spectrum of uh, people groups. Uh, I think that was uh, would be one of my biggest takeaways. The Thunderbirds are unlike any other organization that I ever worked with in, in the Air Force. Certainly, there's the demonstration side of it, and I never did that before or after the time I spent as the commander of the team. But, but then you have... Um, 27 different career fields underneath the same hangar. Uh, we worked with maintenance on a day-to-day -day basis as a fighter pilot. We would engage occasionally with public affairs, but, but when you're talking about graphic artists, videographers, public affairs specialists, going out and, and meeting people on a day-to-day -day basis and giving a message of the Air Force for people who are, who are aching to hear it, putting all those things together, that experience was a foundation like few others. Do you have any uh, favorite stories or experiences from that? 
I, I've got a bunch. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, I would say the things that that will will stay with me for the rest of my life are the emotional touches, Emily, and and the things that we did. We built several um, such a compressed schedule that you could get caught in, up in it and lose track of what was really important. And so every week, the team intentionally built a couple of of traditions, if you will, um, rituals of sorts that really helped you power through the week and then continue to maintain a solid foundation, a grip on on where you should be with your mind. Every Friday, uh, we would do a practice at uh, the, the demonstration site. So we'd fly into a location on Thursday, do some uh, chores, do a public uh, relations event on Thursday night. And then Friday morning, we would get up and we would fly a practice demonstration. And we would have memorized 26 points on the ground. We knew the, the geographic references, the hills, the rising terrain, the, the dangers and that. And we would go out and over the course of an hour, or so practice, go in and see how well our, our minds had mapped to the area. And we would fly an entire demonstration. But when we landed, uh, we would get out of the jets very often one at a time as we ran out of gas. And then we would run headlong into a crowd of, of, of very special people. We did these events called Make-A-Wish Gatherings um, every Friday morning and uh, to get out and walk into these people who are facing some of the largest challenges that you can imagine as a parent knowing that you're going to potentially lose a child is one of the greatest and gravest threats that any one of us could face. But walking into them and feeling the power and the presence that they had and the confidence and, and you really got a sense for what was important. And then engaging those little people in ways that would stay with them and their families for many years beyond was something very powerful. I walked away from one of those sessions, and they would last half an hour, 45 minutes. We would give big hugs, sign autographs, and take pictures. And I was walking away from one of them, one of the events, and I was actually trailing a family that was a Make-A-Wish family. And there was a little boy inside that group who was the focus of that family's efforts for the day, and he was just popping up and down just as excited as he could be. And when I, I got up alongside of him, he stopped his family and he said, Mom, Dad, this is the greatest day of my entire life. And, and I realized at that moment that that little boy may not live to see the next year, but we had given him a gift that would be very powerful for him and maybe motivate him to, to strive and fight for a couple of more days or, or fight through the illness he was in. And we had given that family a member, memory that would carry them through um, the next several months, if not years as well. Very special to me those days. And I would say that's something I wasn't expecting. Yeah. Well, J.B., your experience is very unique to this building. Uh, your presence certainly is recognized and admired uh, amongst the building. What did you what did you take over from from being a Thunderbird, being a leader as well in the Air Force? Uh, what have you taken over to apply to your job here at Heritage? How have those values and those traditions and uh, the preparation, how has that helped you here? Well, Brad, I'll, I'll say that this organization is as special a place as I've ever been. And when I walked in the Thunderbirds, they had rituals and traditions that, that really were tight, tightened that group up and made them feel special. They bound folks who would never have met each other in the active duty Air Force in a way knotted them up and made them run together faster and further than you could have ever imagined a group that didn't have anything in common up to that point. 
when I stepped into this organization, what I found was a lot of people who were of like minds and who had that same work ethic, that same drive, that type A mentality to be the best and do the best that they possibly could. But there's this other side, which I found, which is very humbling. And that is the humble nature of the people inside of this organization with the great accomplishments that you all have and the amount, uh, the portfolio that's within this building to actually walk the hallways and meet people that that are just as, as salt of the earth as you would ever want to know. They're here. And to be part of that is one of the greatest gifts I can step into. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming and sharing your experiences. Real quick, did you keep track of how many flights you did? With the Thunderbirds uh-huh. or writ large? Yeah. I did 117 air demonstrations with the wow. Thunderbirds. Generally, yeah, I get about 70, 75 a year. Okay. And what happened my second year was 9-11. And okay. so we lost almost all of our jet demonstrations from the day those uh, those airplanes flew into the tower and the into the Pentagon. Uh, we lost all but three, I think, by the end of the year. And okay. so for September, October, and November. So tragic year. Uh, the few that we did were some of the most powerful patriotic moments of my life. Great. Well, thanks so much for sharing these experiences with us. And that wraps it up for Mass Ave. Be sure to check us out on Facebook at Mass Ave and join us next week. Thank you.